Hey, welcome to Bandit's Keep. I've got uh, some calls from Jason from Nerds RPG Variety Cast, Joe from Highness Sightless, and also we got John calling again. So uh, this is about my last episode primarily, but before that I'm going to jump in with a little question. I'm curious what you guys think about it, the topic of how to play, or better play, or however you want to say it, uh, other species besides humans. Okay guys, so I'm just kind of... Uh, Hopefully this is going to be quick. Um, <laughs> it's kind of off the top of my head because something I've been wanting to talk about. There's been a little bit of a back and forth in a couple of different podcasts about playing different species and um, the like. I think I think it was Joe that said that, you know, of course we play, you know, different humans like humans with pointed ears because we're humans. <laughs> that's all we know. And I agree. I mean, I think that's actually a valid, valid point. And I think it's it, there's also the idea, too, that do we even need to play them differently? I mean, I feel like it's cool to try, but does it have to be? No, definitely not. You know, I mean, whatever. I think that, though, so, but forgetting about that, let's assume we want to try. I think one technique we can take is to look at, like, fables and fairy tales, especially for dwarves and elves, which are, you know, obviously been around for a long, long time. Um, and think about some of the qualities that they seem to have right now the elves especially in my experience of reading uh, has been that they are almost like amplified human well oftentimes flaws but um and that might be kind of fun to play up right maybe your elf is very very like over the top they're like a human time is 10 so because again we know how to play humans so we might know how to play like a greedy human how will we play a very, very greedy elf, like somebody who's super greedy, eyes bulging out of their head, right? Maybe we, we know we, we might uh, understand what it's like to be loyal or to, to have some kind of connection to a group or a clan. So what, what about a dwarf that's like, again, amplified, like everything that you find that's dwarf, they find a skeleton of a dwarf in, in the dungeon, they've got to stop to bury it. They can't just leave it there. They find, uh, you know, some treasure and it's got some dwarven things in it. They want that. They deserve it. They're a dwarf. You cannot have that. Even if it exceeds their fair share of the treasure, uh, it doesn't matter. That's theirs because it's a dwarf thing, right? Like this could be, again, not so much in the sense that you're going to cause strife in the party. Obviously, you want to talk uh, to the other players about this. but So that's one way to do it, really super amplify a human uh, trait, I guess is lack of a better word. And again, I know that's still just playing a human, but at least by doing it so over the top, it kind of, and again, you want to do it to a point where, again, not to be annoying to the rest of the players, but that it's almost like beyond what you would imagine any human really going that far or caring, like just to the extreme, but only about that one thing. I think that's what's going to make it important. They're not, you don't want to play them. So everything's like that. So the character might be very stoic most of the time. The, let's say the dwarf, but then when they see that dwarven, you know, that one coin that's got a dwarven symbol on it, that's a, I don't know, that's a silver piece. They don't care about the goblets made of gold that are on the thing. They only want that one silver piece because it's a dwarven, you know, it's because, you know, you don't always want to play it so that your character benefits from it. Sometimes they won't benefit, right? But the other way we could do is we could think about why certain traits were given to certain species. So, like, for instance, how dwarves are good at noticing slanting passages um, traps and shifting walls uh, in underground settings. 
you know, a lot of times people attribute that to the idea that they like are builders because I think that's very token, right? They build all stuff. But you could also just attribute it to the fact that maybe they're just extra sensitive about seeing things that are out of place, especially in stone and cracks and stuff. Like, uh, kind of like, you know, um, they, they see it and they're just like, they're staring at it. Like, they're just like, I, I, we can't, we can't walk down the hallway. There's a crack there. You're not allowed to step across a crack. Oh no! And you know, and really play it up, and then it turns out when they they start searching that area, there's a pit trap, you know. So like, it's like their instinct when they see these cracks that there's something going on, something's wrong, right? It's like we're going lower in the earth. Why are we being going? Why are we going lower? What's going on? You know, and it's just a slanting passageway, right? It's a shifting wall. So they're they're kind of like instinctually knowing these things. Now, if you're going to play that way, and of course you want to talk to the dungeon master about that then you probably want to have a dungeon master that's willing to just like either have your character just notice those things. Well, obviously traps you might not do, but, um, you know, or a role, you know, you can say, listen, I just want you to roll for me, you know, that kind of thing and create, you know, a, a, a share experience with the dungeon master because you can then focus on it. Right. And I think elves are, are good at finding secret doors. Right. Um, and they are also, I think, immune to, to the paralysis effect of ghouls. Uh, in some later editions, elves don't sleep. So again, you can really play that up. Like, what are they doing when they don't sleep? One thing that I did in my uh, BX campaign I ran a while back was elves regain their their spells by dancing under the moonlight. Like, they didn't have spell books. That's what magic users have. They're elves. They get their powers from dancing under the moonlight. Which meant that if you spent the night in the in the, uh, in the dungeon, or if it was a moonless night, you did not get your spells back, you know? And you had to take time to do it, which means you couldn't do the guard duty and stuff. And, and it was also, depending on where you were, it might be risky, right? Because you had to go away from the party to do it. Oh, must have been making me cough. Let's just stop the rest Anyways, um, yeah, you, uh, you play up something that is very, again, either like an extreme trait of humans, which is very common for things like dwarves and elves and stuff, or if they are some kind of monstrous race that's related to an animal, like let's say it's a cat person, right? then think about how cats are. They're very jumpy, right? Um, they're very quick to uh, to move on things or to, to, they're quick to attack. They're also quick to flee, you know? So you can play your character up like that. You can you can look at things like if you're like a, uh, you know, a snake person or a lizard person, you can play them up. You know, they're cold-blooded, so maybe they're a little slower, that kind of thing. And just think about those qualities too, like the physical quality of the actual race or species and try to play that into how you play them a little bit like how would somebody be like how would an elf be if you know, cuz they live for so long right so the equivalent for them a day for a day for us is really the equivalent of like maybe an hour for them so maybe they're just not in a rush to ever do anything they're just sitting there and they see this beautiful uh meadow of flowers and they just stop and it's like the rest of the party is like hey we got to get to this place and they're just like Oh, we'll get there. Don't worry about it. You know, and they just want to look and stare at the meadow for two hours because that's what they want to do, you know, and that's awesome, you know, uh, or maybe have them constantly forget to do things because they're like, oh, we'll get to it eventually. You know, you can, you know, you can play it. And I, I get, I'm mostly pointing out flaws because I think that that's where we're going to really shine in role play wise. I feel like the, any positive thing about them is it tends to not be as fun to role play. So I don't know, maybe it is. So you guys let me know. So anyways, that was just a little short thing. I wanted to get some feedback. What do you guys do when you're playing like another another race? Like how do you try to play them up a little differently or do you care? I mean, does it matter? Is it not just as fun to just basically have a, a character with pointy ears and playing like a human? <laughs> 
And I'll also point out one other thing, like, because I actually see a, this is probably two questions, but I'm going to jump into this, is, uh, for me, I like two, two general styles. So I'm making, like, a, one is that, this is the one I like the most, more sword and sorcery, where it's, like, mostly humans, and maybe have a single elf in the party. And then, but then the other way of playing is where, like, a more of a D&D 5e-ish way that I see is that, like, there's no humans in the party. Like, it's basically Thundercats, you know, like, everybody, well, I guess everybody's the same species and other cats but you know everybody's a little bit you know there's you got one dragonborn one tiefling one ogre one you know snake person whatever and that's also kind of an interesting way to play you know where because if everybody is different and weird right that's what, we, that's what they say right if everything's different and weird then nothing's different and weird which maybe then just allows everybody to just play themselves as humans so maybe that is fine in that play and you only really need to need is not really the right word play your demi-human strange if you're in a human-centric world, if that makes sense. So anyways, let me know what you guys think, and I'll talk to you soon. Hey, Jason, Bandits Brigade here. Just want to say that I enjoyed your Cyber Lemmings episode. I was just messing with you with the wishy-washy thing. And, and you're right. The one constant in life is change. Whether we like it or not, the one constant in life is change. So... Being wishy-washy isn't necessarily a bad thing unless you change your opinions to gain approval from other people. And and to me, that's what wishy-washy is, and I don't think you're doing that by any means. I, I really don't. You stand by what your opinions are, no matter how nonsensical they are. So to me, wishy-washy is when you're talking to me, you say what I want to hear, and when you talk to Joe, you say what he wants to hear. And, and you try not to ever get caught in the middle, and that, that's kind of wishy-washy to me. But I, I don't see you that way, really. Um, I, I, I did note that you, you misspoke about something, though, and we'll talk about that on the next call. I actually tend to agree with you that games a lot of times are better with just the core book or maybe one additional thing, right? Look, Top Secret's a great example of this. I, I, I know you've played Top Secret before. The Top Seeker core game, the box set, was great for what it was. And then when you get the Top Seeker Companion, yeah, some of the things were okay, but they tried to add so much in that Top Seeker Companion that it kind of made it pretty, even more unwieldy, right? So Top Seeker probably was better without the Companion added in. Now, I know you kind of misspoke a little bit when you're talking about AD&D, because really for AD&D, the core books one should have are the Monster Manual, the Player's Handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide, and the Fiend Folio. And then all that other stuff you can get rid of. But the Fiend Folio is a non-negotiable, Daniel. I know you're with me on this, because Anglophiles, you know. Maybe it's because I'm tired. I've re-recorded this message at least six times, because I keep running against the minute time limit. I don't even remember what the last message I actually sent you was. Maybe when I cut myself off trying to say Anglophiles Unite when I was singing the praises of the Fiend Folio. But I agree with you. In most cases, you could stick with the core books and be perfectly happy. You really don't need the additions. Uh, you, you really don't. The, there, there are going to be exceptions. There are always exceptions. But with D&D, those four core books, including the Fiend Folio, are all you need. BX, those two, two sets, two box sets are all you need. Boot Hill, all you need is the base set. Gamma World, really, all you need is that base set. You know, think of back in the day, the second edition. Um, top Secret, all you needed was that base set, right? So Ash, second edition Ash, all you need is that core book. It does everything you need.
So, yeah, I'm with you here, Daniel. You know, it's interesting about the Fiendfolio is that um, I'm thinking back now, and I'm pretty sure that the my friend, my my friend next door, we were playing, had the Fiendfolio. It was one of the earlier AD&D books that we had. Um, and then later we got the, um, I had the Player's Handbook DM's Guide. I think he got the other monster manuals. Um, which is maybe the reason why I run the way I do now that I don't really care so much about exacting. Like I like to make my own monsters cause I didn't have the monster manual. I had the BX uh, set of course, which had monster in it. But yeah, I, I, I stick by that. I think that having the minimal amount of stuff is generally best. Now it could be of course that a, a system comes out and they overlooked something and the game starts running. And then next thing you know, they they, they want to add something because it's like a screw up or whatever. Uh, I don't know if script's the right word, but uh, you know, then maybe they could add it. But then I think in the revision of the first book would be a better idea than just adding another book onto it. But yeah, that's just my thought. Maybe I'm also just uh, cheap and I don't want to have a bunch of books. Who knows? <laughs> but yes, thanks for calling, Jason. Now I don't necessarily think you need it, but um, I gotta say another book that I really liked from and I did have actually in AD and D was Deities and Demigods. I think that was the book that I sat down and read the most. I just enjoyed reading it, um, just flipping through it, reading of the different uh, different types of uh, you know pantheons and stuff. So that's a pretty cool book too. So that's one you that they could add to it, and you didn't uh, didn't necessarily ruin it. But I also think that maybe it did because you know if you talk to some of these guys that have been around a long time, like the Frank Menzers and Tim Cast and stuff, they talk about like how people will start writing in like, okay, I killed all the gods, what's next? And that probably. <laughs> I don't think that was necessarily meant to be the case. To pick up with that last thought, the best games that use relationships, backgrounds, motivations, etc., have a sp- explicit mechanism for those to change and evolve over time. I guess my question here then is, if you're if you're saying this, if I have a flaw or whatever this part of my background or a relationship. I don't need to use it. And if so, then why is it in the game? I get that it's not a button that people press, but at the same time, if the, if the background says that I hate spiders and when spiders come into the scene, I don't react to hitting spiders, then why did I even bother to roll that? Why not just have it say something like, pick something that you're afraid of or make up something when you encounter it, as opposed to specifically saying, I hate spiders, which is what these backgrounds do in many cases. I'm not saying that they're wrong for everyone. In fact, people that aren't good role players or can't figure out how they want to play their character, sure, that's awesome for them. But I don't think they should be forced upon players that want to create their own backgrounds. To flog the dead horse of usage dice, we play games because we want a space where we feel like we have more control over the world. Resource management is one way where players feel like they're in control. No player with half a brain would ever run out of arrows or oil or rations or anything else at an important time. The whole point of usage dice is is that they're a narrative tool. They add variability to the situation. In a story, Success isn't interesting. Perfect resource management isn't interesting. What's interesting is when something goes wrong and you find out 
you are short of something that you need. Yeah, I don't disagree with either of those points. I think that, uh, right, a good player or a player that's paying attention will never run out of things. And that is the challenge as the DM to put those things in front of them, right? Because in later games where that stuff is, tends to be ignored, which isn't necessarily the case, obviously, you can count errors in 5th edition. But now we have to put more and more monsters in front of the player characters. If my game is about getting past obstacles, I will make them run out of arrows. I will make them run out of 10-foot poles and rope as part of my uh, establishing uh, the the choice me mechanism, right? They can only carry so much. That's what encumbrance is about. So yeah, you can say I'll never run out, but you will run out. I've had characters going to dungeons with five, six vials of oil and they've run out because they need to use it to, to, to stop a monster for chasing them or, or they fall into a pit trap and the oil breaks, stuff like that. So again, I'm not saying that, not to get that adversarial thing going on, but I'm not saying that I, I look and go, oh, they have five things of oil, I'm going to make them break it. It's just that I put challenges in their way that I know will help deplete their resources because depleting the resources and managing the resources is part of the game as I run it. If you don't want to do that and your game is simply going to be run kind of very surface level, lots of combat or lots of role play, let's say, lots of talk, then the usage I could be interesting to use when you just don't want to do that work. But I just don't see the point of it because to me, it takes away the part of the game that I enjoy, which is the challenging of the players to manage their resources and to manage their time and to manage all the different things that they need to manage when they're running the game. But, and I think you're absolutely right. There is this like clash between this kind of game is still whatever I hate to name things, but, or narrative, but I think you can have both. I think there is a place for, for a mixture. And I think when you start jamming narrative tools into a system that doesn't, this actually reflects back to what Jason was talking about. When you jam the narrative tools into the system that doesn't necessarily, I'm going to say need, I don't know if that's really the right word, them, then I think that it can feel awkward. And that's where usage dice feel awkward to me because people approaching a game, let's say the PX, if you shoved usage dice in there, it wouldn't make sense. It's like the game is about narrative. Why not about narrative, brother? It's about it's a structured game about dungeon crawling, especially at first levels. So, you know, and then at higher levels, it's about adventuring across hexes and stuff, right? So it's a different kind of game than let's say Dungeon World or even the Black Hack on some level, although I feel like the Black Hack is meant to, meant to emulate D&D, &D, but like lazy D&D. &D. And I don't mean lazy as a, as a negative here. It's, you know, same way they say like Lazy Dungeon Master. It's like the, the, the big pitch of the Black Hack in a lot of these games is that they're simpler and I think that's my point about usage dice is I don't see them being any simpler, which means I don't see the reason for them. I get that narratively, it's cool to say, aha, you ran out of arrows, even though you had planned for it. But at the same time, uh, <laughs> that just does nothing for me. I mean, just me personally. So again, that's a clash of different styles and it's totally fine. I mean, I've definitely played in games, especially beer and pretzel, as Jason would say, uh, one shots where the DM is just like, you have whatever you need, don't worry about it. Because he knew or they knew, because they're female DMs, that the game wasn't about whether or not you were going to run out arrows. It was about something else. And then that stuff was hand-waved. And again, that comes down to talking to the players. It wasn't a session zero, clearly, because it was a one-shot, but kind of a that pre-session uh, house rules, if you want to call it that, or, or rule zero, was taking effect at that point. So I think one of the problems with talking about these things is that there's so many examples that are different Right. There's so many different ways. Like I said, like I talking about Jason, it seems like I'm changing my mind. But the reality is, is that 
you know, there's many different ways to play, and I like to play different ways. You will not always get the exact same game when you play with me, and I definitely don't want to sit down to the exact same game. I find that super boring. So there you go. I think that's that's my thought on that. <laughs> beat, beat to death. But thanks, thanks for calling in, John. Yo, Daniel, a little on waffling, man. I, I agree <laughs> totally. Like, they're used back when politics weren't as disgusting as they are now, even though they were still were gross. You know, that was flip flopping was like the worst thing a politician could ever do, according to the media. And that made no sense to me. Like, of course, people are going to change their opinions on things. They should. I hope they do. You know, knowing somebody's static. That's no fun. So, yeah, I'm right there with you, man. Flip-flopping, changing your opinions, there's nothing wrong with that. Peace out. Yo, Daniel, as for a possible, though I don't know if it would be, possible way that the utility dice might be simpler, and to put it out there, I'm not a huge fan of the utility dice, but here's what I'm thinking. If you roll the utility dice with your attack roll and your damage roll all at the same time, you know, since you're rolling dice anyway, you just throw your utility dice in there. That could be quicker than rolling the dice, grabbing your pencil, erasing the number, writing in a new number. I don't know. I don't know, like, what the timing on that would be. It might be simpler. I have no idea. But you asked for some ways, so that's a possible way. Anyway, man, peace out. Yeah, I actually think that's a good idea. And in fact, oh God. I forget what system it is now, but there is a system that uses firearms in the medieval. And I think there's like a one in 10 chance that you'll have a misfire. And the way they say to do it is exactly that. You you roll your attack and the misfire die at the same time. And if you look at the misfire die first, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, and if in fact it misfired, then you your attack is in, in, invalid. So yeah, I guess it would be faster that way. I just, again, as I said before, I don't, I don't want to like, rank on it. I think these people create amazing, I would certainly want to stop anybody from creating their own awesome mechanics, but um, yeah, I, I think that you're right. If you roll it at the same time, it shouldn't take any more time. And it's, it's a, although the thing with the usage die though, is that it's not a state of you either have arrows or you don't, right? You have a die and unless you're at the very bottom of it, the D4 die, right? You still have to erase it and bring it down if you fail. So <laughs> you know, it'll always be faster. Oh man, who knows? But anyways, there's lots of awesome mechanics and they're great to use. And one of the very first things that I love to do is that if I see something I don't think I like in a RPG, I mean, I don't mean that in like a, an offensive way, like something that would offend me, but like a mechanic or something that's weird. I usually like to play it. I'll be like, oh, that looks like a terrible rule. Let me try it. Because <laughs> a lot of times when we see something that we think is bad, we have to see it in context. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that, uh, that we make um, you know, when, when looking at different games is that we don't look at them in the context of the game as opposed to the context, you know, we look at them in the context of what we know already. So like I could look at, I don't know, like Pathfinder, let's say, and say, oh, they give you so many feats that must take so long to do this. This doesn't make sense. But the reality of it is, is that the feats are what make you have awesome combat or maybe feats that are outside of combat and have you do awesome things outside of combat. Like those combine to create these really cool moments and I don't really understand that because I haven't tried the game or played it. So I'm like, oh, that's such a pain in the ass. But at the same time, it might be really fun if I played it. And that's the reason why, as much as I kind of like to give you crap a little bit about it, you know, whatever, um, power, power gaming or whatever min maxing we're talking about, the reality is, is I'm not actually against any level. I think that it can be really cool in those kind of games. 
Uh, and I think it's super interesting. So yeah, I don't know. I don't think I will ever bring the usage of dice into, <laughs> into my game in particular, but um, it's good to know that, uh, that, that there are faster ways to run it and also that you do roll it at the same time. So it can create that dramatic tension because I guess if you're rolling the lowest usage die while you're shooting your bow, you might end up not having any arrows. But I also feel like most trained warriors would reach back, feel there was no arrow there, and then they wouldn't lose their turn. They would do something else. So I don't know how that works either. So, you know, narratively, I get in a movie that it's funny or whatever, but you would know how many arrows you have in your, I'm quite sure, as you're shooting them. Anyways, the only thing I can think about is, to keep rambling here, is that I'm a photographer, as, as I've heard mentioned before, and when we used to shoot film, we would shoot these rolls of film, and they had 12 shots on each roll. And you would literally get used to it. You wouldn't actually be counting it out loud, like one, two, three, but you would always know when you were running out because you just get so used to shooting 20, uh, 12, in that case, 12 frames. You would be used to shooting 20 arrows or, you know, you'd look and you'd be like, oh, I got 10 arrows. You would have a feel for it. So I just don't see somebody running out of arrows um, in the middle of the fight. And, well, not in the middle of the fight, but like when they reach back to get one. So I don't know. Now I guess I need to make a game that uses all usage dice so I can try to figure out why I don't like it. But... There's just something about it that mm -hmm. I'm also a hater, as if you haven't noticed that, <laughs> but I like to hate on stuff. So there we go. Daniel is a hater. I've admitted it, but what can I say? But I don't hate you, Joe. Thanks for calling in. That was awesome. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thank you to all my callers. Uh, if you guys would like to call in on any of these subjects or a different subject, uh, please feel free to do so. And I will talk to you soon.